Good evening. I have to say, I'm getting more worried about the situation in Ukraine. Whilst militarily, things may appear to be relatively quiet there, relatively, there is, I think, a danger of escalation. It could happen by accident or it could happen by design. But certainly, there's a ratcheting up on both sides in terms of the language being used. Now, biowarfare labs have been talked about quite a lot over the course of the last few days. Speculation as to whether they're funded by American taxpayers. And I can understand why in America particularly that's a story after Wuhan and the attempt to cover everything up. But the fact there are scientific labs in the Ukraine, if it's true, doesn't, it seems to me, give a very good reason for an invasion. But those around Vladimir Putin are saying quite strongly that they fear there could be a chemical attack on them from the Ukrainians, and that worries me. Is this a pretext, potentially, for a possible use of chemical weapons by the Russians? I don't know, but it worries me. And indeed, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, this afternoon, saying that he was worried about this too. Liz Truss today says very clearly, war crimes are being committed. So it's strong language on both sides. Boris Johnson, as I said already, concerned about a possible use of chemical weapons. Would this be a red line for NATO and the West? Well, probably not, because Obama, famously when he was president, drew a red line in Syria on the use of any chemical weapons, and nothing much happened. But I just get this feeling. There's a ratcheting up on both sides. I don't see anybody, any global leader, genuinely attempting to be a peace broker. And I guess, really, it's the Chinese president, above all, that has the real power here, but doesn't appear to want to really use it. Let's hope my concerns are false. Let's hope my concerns are wrong. Let me ask you, what do you think? Do you think there's a risk of this war escalating? Give me your thoughts, please. Farage at GBNews.UK. Now, the announcement came this morning of another list of names of Russians, UK-based Russians, who are being sanctioned. And it included the name of Roman Abramovich. Now, the reason that's been given is that he has ties to Vladimir Putin. He himself rejects that. Either way... I'm beginning to ask myself a question. What are we trying to do? I guess what we're doing is we're trying to turn the rich Russian oligarchs against President Putin. That's the game, I think, that the government are engaged in. And yet, is it right to effectively seize people's assets without any form, any sense of due process? And will it really turn Russians against Vladimir Putin. I'm concerned about the way in which this is being done. And, of course, it includes Chelsea Football Club. Now, you know, Abramovich has owned Chelsea since 2003. They've won about 20 major titles in that time. He'd already said, and my guess was he'd said it to try and avoid being sanctioned, he'd already said that the club was up for sale. He'd already said that his £1.5 billion loan he didn't want to be returned. He'd already said that any profits from the sale would go into a fund to help victims of the war in Ukraine. But nevertheless, they've gone ahead, plunging Chelsea into chaos. Their main shirt sponsor, Three, pulled out of sponsorship a couple of hours ago, and Chelsea will be kicking off in about 20 minutes. Rumoured 
uh, that one of the staff has been to a well-known sports store trying to find 11 blue football sweaters unbranded for them to wear. What are the implications of all of this? What does it mean for the sale of Chelsea? Will it go ahead? Surely a government can't negotiate the sale of a football club. Well, I'm joined by the former chairman of Millwall FC, Theo Pafitis. Theo, good evening. Well, I was hoping to be... There he is. Theo, can you hear me? Theo, I mean, this... I, I don't know whether you're surprised by this move. You know, my question was, where's the due process? But but it's happened anyway, hasn't it? Well, hold on, Nigel. Hold on, hold on. Remember why they're doing this. There's no due process about moving into Ukraine and bombing innocent civilians. So please, don't, don't give me any due process. There is no due process in Russia. So let's push that one out the window and stop getting wound up about it. Um, fact is, the government, which, as you know, I'm not a massive fan of, have got very little few weapons in their armoury in regards to this situation. And one of those is sanctions. It's the biggest one. And a huge amount of sanctions have been put on. And you're absolutely right in what you're saying. They're trying to put as much pressure on Russia to force some form of change, whether it's a change in regime or a change in leader. Because, as you started off saying uh, at the beginning, you don't know where this is going to move to. And it could escalate to levels that are unimaginable, that none of us want to be uh, even thinking about. Furthermore, the situation is NATO and the rest of the West don't really want to get into a war to create that escalation where it becomes Russia against the West. So sanctions are important, and oligarchs that have got influence over their president are definitely fair game. OK, I take the point you're making, and we have put, you know, very severe sanctions and restrictions on Russian banks and many other big economic activities. I guess my question, Theo, was, you know, Abramovich is very, very high profile. Uh, if this turns into an attempt to punish every well-off Russian in London. I just sort of ask about... I ask about any sense of equity. That's all. Well, I don't... Again, I you, word, you're using words. At the moment, bombs are falling on people, killing women and children. So, oh. please, just don't use words like equity. I mean, the, the, the Chelsea situation, which is what you invited me on to talk about, um, I think is a... Is a it's a very delicate situation because Chelsea is not a mansion in the uh, in the West End that, or in Knightsbridge that Abramovich owns. Chelsea is a British institution. And whether you're a Chelsea fan or you don't like Chelsea, the fact is they're one of the most successful football clubs in the country, certainly in the last 20 years. And furthermore, hundreds of thousands, nay, millions of people have got massive emotional investment in Chelsea Football Club, yeah. their parents, their grandparents, and the government, whilst I think I've done absolutely the right thing in the sanctions, and I'll argue if you want me to come on and talk about the sanctions, I'm happy to do so, yeah. absolutely the right thing. Whether they're right. doing them in the right way or not, I mean, we all know, with hindsight, we can all do things slightly different. My biggest concern is the integrity of the sporting game of football. And 
how these sanctions are going to affect the integrity of the competition, of the Premier League competition. Are they going to put Chelsea now at a disadvantage, which means that the latter part of the season now, anybody playing Chelsea gains an advantage? That doesn't seem to be fair, as far as the sporting competition is concerned. Or, as we've seen with the sort of hashed-up um, plans they put up, are they not going to allow travelling supporters to go to Chelsea and buy tickets? Yeah, yeah. Which means Chelsea get an advantage. You imagine a London derby with just Chelsea fans in. I mean, there is so that doesn't quite work for me. I think the government have got to go back now. Look at these licenses, and they've got to protect the integrity of the competition. Chelsea Football Club, like them or not, is not a building. It's a living, breathing business with millions of people emotionally attached and thousands working for it, being paid by it. And the competition involves many, most of the country, to be perfectly frank with you. So they've got to make sure they protect the integrity of the game. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems, I guess, one of the practical problems is there are players whose contracts are ending and, you know, the end of the season is in sight. Uh, they can't conduct any transfers. So all of that is going to be very difficult for them. But what well, about they, the they sale of the club? What, what about the sale of the well, club thing? Because... Go on. We're in the close season, so there is no transfers at the moment, right? So they're not going to be bringing anybody in or getting rid of anybody. We're in the close season. There is some players that are going to be out of contract at the end of the season. Several of them have said they're going to leave anyway. Yep. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. So, but they won't have the luxury of uh, negotiating with those players, which definitely will then degrade the value of the football club. So that will have an effect on the price of it. Yes, I mean, I guess it will. And we've heard about some Americans, a couple of American consortiums lining up to potentially buy it. There's been rumours of British businessman Nick Candy trying to put together a consortium as well. So there's certainly interest out there in buying it. Uh, given, that it's now, given that it's now under sanctions, is this a deal that the government would conduct? That's a very good question. And I spoke to Nick uh, only a couple of hours ago, actually. Send you his regards, Nigel. Um, and Nick is still quite keen, and the people he's uh, working with are quite keen. The deal's not going to happen overnight. I mean, a deal with, at the end of the day, however long it takes to do the deal, whether it's weeks or months, it's still going to be approved by the Premier League. Yeah. And now the government have got to approve it as well. And I'm not sure, Nigel, whether the government can sell Chelsea Football Club without Roman Ravitch's permission. I know they've seized the assets, but can they actually sell it? So there's a question for you. Yeah, no, it, it's a good question, and I, I just don't know the answer to it. Um, I just don't so know. It, it, it seems they've got the power to do more or less whatever they like. Well, we, we don't know. As you know, the bill only went through Parliament uh, yesterday or the day before yesterday. I can't remember, but it's a brand-new bill. And historically, by the way, uh, I'm knowledgeable of one particular event, which is a property that was owned by a certain gentleman in the Middle East that is no longer with us because um, there was a, a coup in his country. And that was a long time. So, 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 that was, so they, would have, they sanctioned him and took a property from him that's 
could have been 15 years ago. They haven't sold it. This, this treasury and the crown still has that property and looks after that property. So there would have been a reason for that. Now, obviously, this is a new bill that's come into effect. So hopefully, if there was any flaws in previous legislation, that now might not be a problem anymore. Who knows? But the fact is, Chelsea Football Club uh, have got to be allowed to play as normally as possible uh, for the integrity of the Premier League and football. And the government got to take that on board. This is a living, breathing business. And a lot of people are emotionally invested and they're a national institution. So you can't just say, we're going to sanction, oh, I sort of think about £20,000 for them to travel to away games. I mean, quite honestly, not try to 50, 60 people that go to Europe for Chelsea. I mean, you wouldn't get changed up £100,000. Yeah. Unless they're all going to go on the bus. Yeah, I think we're going to have to do a, a, quite a rethink on lots of areas here, but certainly on the big question of a sale. Uh, we're all in the dark on this. Theo, thank you very much indeed for joining us and talking about this this evening. That was Theo Pafitas, oh, yeah. and of course you know him, don't you? You know him from television programmes, you know him for his, his really successful chain. I mean, he's one of the great high street giants, but he's a former chairman of Millwall Football Club too. In a minute, we'll talk more about what is actually going on in Ukraine and whether there is a danger, as I'm beginning to fear, of escalation. I'm concerned about escalation. What do you think? Julia says it's definitely escalating. Putin seems determined to push on no matter what sanctions we put on him. He has nuclear bombs, but surely someone would have the sense to stop him if he tried to press that button. Well, let's certainly hope so. Stuart says it looks that way, but big respect to Ukraine for holding their ground. Joe Biden could learn a lot from them. <laughs> Robert says the war in Ukraine will only escalate if Putin decides it should. I'm not sure. I think escalation comes on both sides, to be frank. Anthony says they carried out a chemical attack in the UK. I'm quite sure they're not bothered about doing it in Ukraine. And finally, David says, we the West have far more to lose than the East, so the government needs to be careful what they hand over. Which leads me very neatly on to introducing Mark White, our Home Affairs and Security Editor. Mark before the conflict, before the conflict, we had uh, a situation where we were training Ukrainians and we were also sending equipment over to Ukrainians, some of which, particularly anti-tank equipment, and we'll come back to that, but appears to be highly effective. But we are now ratcheting up in terms of what we're sending them during a conflict. Yes, that's right. I mean, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, is now considering sending a system called Starstreak which is an anti-air defence system. Uh, it is probably one of the most powerful portable air defence systems that's out there. It can go four times the speed of sound. Mm. Uh, it can travel four miles up. Uh, so even the high-flying aircraft are at risk from this particular... So in a sense, in a sense, that's us contributing towards a no-fly zone, effectively. Well, it is. Um, if it makes it uh, impossible for Russian aircraft to fly in certain areas, then that would be. Now, we're not sure how many of these Star Streak anti-air defence systems they would send and quite how they'll get them in is another matter. 
clearly Russia has warned about uh, lethal aid going in, uh, which will, of course, be used directly against its forces. So there's no doubt it is an escalation. Mm. The training of the Ukrainian forces in the years before Russia went in, that's one thing, 22,000 Ukrainian members of the Ukrainian Armed Forces trained in the use of these NLAW anti-tank missiles. Which appear to be amazingly effective. Well, they are incredibly effective. We've seen the images come out and we've had all kinds of claims from the Ukrainian authorities that they have destroyed 335 tanks, more than 1,000 armoured vehicles and taken down dozens of aircraft. Now, we have no way of independently no, verifying no, this. Quite. However, the MOD in the UK and other Western uh, defence intelligence services have done their own assessments. They've got clearly assets on the ground, satellite imagery, and they say that Russia has sustained very significant losses. Mm, interesting. Now, mercenaries. We were talking the other night with the oldest war correspondent in the world about mercenaries, and he was making the point that in wars, all sides use mercenaries. They just try not to talk about it very much. But you've been looking in particular and they're very interesting. I don't know whether you'd call the Wagner Group mercenaries, but they're quite close, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They're certainly mercenaries. This is, uh, they're called loosely a company, but there's, it doesn't really exist. And, of course, the Russian government uh, denies its existence, denies that, actually, this is a private army set up at the behest of Vladimir Putin. But they're out there, Nigel. Uh, they have been involved in other conflicts to the extent uh, of being involved in allegations of war crimes, and having been sanctioned by the US and the European Union. And you've made a report, and we're going to see it right now. This is Mark White's report on this group. A shadowy organisation gathering hard facts on the activities of the Wagner Group is far from easy. But they are, we've been told, active in Ukraine, likely involved in highly dubious activities. However, as Moscow doesn't even acknowledge their existence, Vladimir Putin has plausible deniability of whatever they're up to. The founder and leader of the group is a sinister, shaven-headed fellow by the name of Dmitry Utkin, a former senior officer in Russia's Spetsnaz Special Forces. Indeed, the Wagner name, we're told, is derived from his Spetsnaz codename, which apparently reflects his appreciation of the Third Reich and Hitler's favorite composer. Under Russian law, Private military companies are illegal, publicly at least. To call them a company would be a stretch, as there are no visible traces of this company existing. However, it has been deemed as a, an asset of plausible deniability by the Kremlin to be utilised for various different conflicts around the world. And they've been active not only in Central Africa, Venezuela, Syria, but also other parts of the world where it may be, again, for various reasons, not pragmatic for the Russian government to utilise their own state troops. It was during deployments here in Syria and Central Africa several years ago that Wagner Group mercenaries were linked to allegations of war crimes, including torture, rape and murder. The wider group is now believed to be under the ownership of Yevgeny Prigozhin, a former criminal and billionaire restaurant owner nicknamed Putin Chef, He's one of a number of Russian elites facing Western sanctions. The West does, of course, also employ the services of private military contractors, groups like the US company Blackwater. Some of their employees were convicted and later pardoned 
in the killing of a number of Iraqi civilians in 2007. But Western contractors are at least regulated and there's official oversight of their activities, unlike their Russian counterparts. We've used private security companies to guard diplomats. We use them in Iraq, we the West that is, use them in Iraq, but mostly for non-military operations. The ones we're talking about here, that doesn't apply to. They're, they're a different breed, if you like, and they're operating under different, different conditions, whether they're accountable to the local military commanders on the ground or whether they're working back to some organization uh, in Moscow or elsewhere, I, I honestly don't know. But the reality is that there's no way are they accountable in the same way that we in, in the West make our private co companies accountable. So are Wagner Group mercenaries now actively hunting Ukraine's leadership, including President Zelensky? Some with knowledge of their activities certainly believe so. From what we understand in Ukraine right now, there is a kill team that are undertaking potential assassinations against key persons including obviously Zelensky, uh, that are very vocal in the charge for both morale for Ukrainian people, but also for the international community. Whether their mission actually includes a leadership assassination command, defense and security analysts have told us they will certainly be involved in sabotage, false flag operations, and the likely interrogation and torture of captured Ukrainians the kind of dirty jobs Vladimir Putin might want to publicly distance himself from. Well, that was Mark White. I'm making the point that all sides use mercenaries in times of war. Now, a bit of an update on the refugee situation. We've been covering uh, night after night this week uh, the numbers coming into Poland, Hungary and elsewhere and actually how amazingly well those countries have coped. There has been huge criticism... Uh, coming for the British government uh, within this country, mostly from the opposition, but some from within the Conservative Party saying we're way, way too slow. I did speculate last night this may be more about the not-fit-for-purpose Home Office than it is the Home Secretary. She made a statement to the House of Commons this morning saying, from Tuesday next week I can announce that Ukrainians with passports will no longer need to go to a visa application centre to give their biometrics before they come to the UK. Instead... Once their application has been considered and appropriate checks completed, they will receive direct notification they're eligible for the scheme and can come to the UK, and then they can do the in-person biometrics once they're here. So this is a streamlining of the refugee procedure. Now, I've been talking through this programme about escalation and my concerns about it, and joining me to discuss this is Colonel John Hughes-Wilson. Um, and, John, we've spoken before about this. You've advised NATO um, on many things in the past. I know you're on the phone, um, but tell me... I'm on the phone, um, yes. Good evening. Am I, am I wrong to be concerned at what I see as a ratcheting up of language and, indeed, of kit? No, you're absolutely 100% right, because in war... Whenever there is a problem and a plan breaks down, there is an automatic ratchet effect. And I'll give you one very quick example, if I may. Uh, when we went to war in 1939-40, the air ministry and the air minister said, we can't bomb this target. You'll be asking me to bomb private property next. And yet by 1945, they, the British and the Americans are having all-out attacks on indiscriminate attacks on cities and civilians. And that's the ratchet effect of war. 
Yes, well, I'm, I mean, I'm concerned about this. What do you make, John, what do you make of all this conversation, online particularly, but elsewhere too, about biolabs in Ukraine? What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's, that's crossing a line. And if I can make a point very quickly, there are three things they can do within the limits of the existing fight. One is they can use existing weapons better, fire more shells. They can introduce new weapons, and, of course, they can put up the psyops. Now, all those I would expect. But once you cross the line and go deep into cyber and nuclear, NBC, nuclear, biological and chemical, then you're crossing a big, big Rubicon. Yeah, and... John, it's I'm an impossible question for you to answer, but I'm going to try. Um, there doesn't seem to be any sense of a peace broker right at the moment. Doesn't seem to be any sense, to me anyway, of a quick resolution. Uh, do you fear this is going to get worse in the next few weeks? Well... I think we can say with some confidence that we've lost Colonel John Hughes Wilson, so former advisor to NATO's international and political staff. John, are you there? Of the east bank of the Dnieper River. I missed that. I lost that. John, thank you for joining us this evening on GB News. We better move on, I think. Now, I talked earlier about sanctions being put on people who were seen to be uh, friends, associates, colleagues of Vladimir Putin. And I asked whether it was being done with due process. And Theopophetis argued very passionately, look, you know, there are bombs falling, there are women and children being killed, it's awful, and so this is all justified. And he said it, I thought, with great passion. He really, really meant it. But I, I just ask a question. Is this turning into a sort of complete anti-Russia or anti-Russian fest. Are we to take it out on all Russians? Is it the fault of all Russians now alive in the world, including those living in the UK? Is it their fault that Putin has done what he's done? And indeed, could it be the fault of Russians who died 130 years ago? You see, I don't think that it is. And yet, astonishingly, the Cardiff Philharmonic Orchestra have cancelled a concert that was going to be held on the 18th of March in St David's Hall, Cardiff, and it was a Tchaikovsky concert, featuring, of course, famously, the 1812 Overture. So that has been cancelled. It's been deemed to be inappropriate. Um, and I sort of wonder whether we're getting towards the stage that people did in August 1914, where people threw stones at dashing dogs in the streets of, of the United Kingdom because they had a German ancestry. Are we just going a little bit too far, too fast? Are we getting, frankly, a little bit hysterical? Should Tchaikovsky be cancelled? I really, honestly, don't think so. And sticking with Wales, the What the Farage moment is that the National Museum of Wales have decided that it is appropriate to place on display banners that took part in demonstrations last year 
for Black Lives Matter. There it is, the black power to the people, Black Lives Matter. And, you know, we know that in the wake of the horrible death of George Floyd, we know that this stuff swept the country. But now we know what the Black Lives Matter organisation is all about. It wants to defund the police. It is Marxist. It has in America been extremely violent. I would have thought, given all of those things, that was a very inappropriate thing for the National Museum of Wales to have done. Some more response from you. Muriel says, Putin used chemical weapons in Syria and the world did nothing. It's therefore likely Putin will use chemical weapons in the Ukraine. He will win this war no matter what the cost is. He is not prepared to lose face. I did mention earlier that Obama set a red line in Syria as president of the USA, and when it was crossed, he did nothing. Never a good idea to make threats if you don't intend to carry them out. Peter says, chemical weapons are bad enough, but my guess with his recent history, Putin will use a deadly bioweapon. Let's hope we're all wrong. Philip says, I think the world condemnation of Russia makes it harder for Putin to back down without a serious excuse. And this is an argument that some of the karma commentators have made. However dreadful things are happening, things that are going on right now in Mariupol and places like that, however dreadful these things are, the West does need to think, how does Putin, how do we give him some way out? And I'm just not sure that anyone is thinking like that. Peter says, Putin does not understand compromise. Ukraine will not surrender. We have therefore a stalemate. Where and who is the power broker? Not Biden. So worrying scenario that's costing Ukrainian lives. And that point, that point about the lack of a peace broker, I think I've said it three times tonight already, it does concern me. In a moment, I'll be joined by Mike Yardley on Talking Pints. He's a man who's been to many, many war zones. He's photographed them. He's a keen sporting shot. And he's a man that's got something to say about the vaccine as well. It's that time of day. Thank goodness. It's Talking Pints. I'm here with photojournalist and war reporter Mike Yardley, who's been out to Afghanistan, Syria, Lebanon. He's also a very keen sporting shot. Let's see him in action. We're on a clay pigeon shooting range, and you may be asking, why is that relevant to the project? Well, because to shoot a clay pigeon, you've got to shoot ahead of the target to hit it. Well, there we go. Mike Yardley, welcome to Talking Pints. Well, I think it's fashionable to say thank you for having me, but it's a great... <laughs> great well, it's very good here. to see you here. And we will get to shooting. And I shoot a little bit, and I'm aware of just how difficult it is to even say that these days. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a sort of anti-gun feeling is very, very strong. Mike, let's talk a bit about your career. Um, you know, you've been in the army, you've been a photojournalist, you've been to some of the most horrendous war zones of the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, how does this situation in Ukraine look to you? All of this is coloured a bit from my own personal experience. As a small kid, I was in the States during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I saw the TV ads, you know, in case of nuclear attack. Mm. I was a young officer on the border with East Germany. And, you know, one, one day when I was duty officer, I thought the balloon was going, going up. In fact, it wasn't. But... I think of all this stuff within that context. I think what's happening in Ukraine is very sad. I, I helped Solidarity with their struggle in Poland. I smuggled ink to 
the printing presses in Gdansk. And I that must have been a fascinating period. Oh, fascinating, absolutely. And, you know, Russian tanks, no thanks, the badges that people had. And, and, and Walensa, this extraordinary figure. Unbelievable. Yeah. Almost came from nowhere. Yeah. Proper, pop, proper popular politics, people power, yeah. on an extraordinary scale, but not quite as we saw it on the Western media. I mean, you know, there were quite a few socialists within that solidarity movement, a lot of unionists. It wasn't quite what the the British and Western media were telling us, and you know, which was convenient to maybe Thatcher at the time or whoever. And I always feel that with the news, having reported on news and having actually been at these places and had foreign news networks trying to sex up their coverage sometimes. I'm always very aware of that. I never quite believe... You mean that President Zelensky may not be the second coming? Yeah, he may not be the second I just, I, has, no, no, no. I, I mean, yeah, quite. We obviously feel great yeah. sympathy. And, and, and a Ukrainian, a very intelligent Ukrainian lady who's a professor in the UK was telling me the other day that we're not doing the Ukraine any favours by having, you know, this very, this mono news, you know, Zelensky hero, mm -hmm. Putin bad. Mm -hmm. There are subtleties which we should discuss, you know, subtleties about the eastern regions and stuff like this. That said... I've been fighting off all sorts of people who appear to be Russian assets online. And that, that's, that's another deal, too. I mean, we are manipulated. We're manipulated by all sides in war. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, look, you know, Ukraine is a very corrupt country with all sorts of problems. Uh, but I suppose my feeling is that what Putin has ultimately done is to invoke, flawed though it is, to go into a sovereign territory. And that is at the heart of the problem. To it me. is appalling. Russian, brutal Russian forces are attacking innocent Ukrainian citizens. There are some grey areas, there's some interesting old history, which doesn't get discussed really on the, the 10 o'clock news, and we ought to discuss that, we ought to think about it. And of course, Ukraine had lots of problems before this started. You know, it, it's not an advanced, you know, democracy as we are. It's a democracy, but it's a democracy that's got lots of issues and problems. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and all of that sort of stuff. But meantime, it worries me that I see a very different sort of deal going on on social media, for example, than I do on the news. Now, some of the social media veers to extremes, but the reason that it veers to extremes, I suspect, and I did have 70-odd thousand people following me now, it's about 65,000, because I spoke up about it, is because people, well, I think they don't like to feel controlled. And when they feel controlled, perhaps they veer towards extremes in despair or whatever. That is a problem that we face. Now, in your days, in your days, going out to yeah. these uh, Lebanon and places that must have been hellholes at the time and kidnap risk and... Well, I got seized in Beirut. You know, I was going, I was working for Time as a snapper, Time the American magazine, yeah, and yeah. I was going down, I think it was Alhambra, and suddenly I had all these AK muscles pointing in my head and somebody saying, Americani, Americani, are you American or American? I said, la, 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 inglesi, inglesi. <laughs> and um, so this went on. And a guy said, are you English? And I said, yeah, I'm English. And he said, um, oh, I was a student in London. Are you from um, The Times? And I said, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> And um, he said, my friends want to take you away. And they did take me away. And very luckily, I got taken to another place, to some sort of, I don't think you'd call it a safe house, but it was a tragic situation because there was an elderly Jewish man in this suburban part of Beirut, crying on the pavement because they were ransacking his house. Mm. I then went into the house, and the younger guys, I think, wanted to do me in. Mm. And the picture you may have shown it, I don't know. And somehow I managed to talk my way out of it. And I said to this guy, I said, what's going to happen to you? He said, oh, I'm going to get killed soon. I mean, that's the sort of reality you face. Afghanistan, by the way, compared to Lebanon, was quite good fun. 
I mean, I went in there, it, you know, you do stupid stuff when you're young. I went in three times across the border clandestinely to go in with a Mujahideen. A friend of mine was a Mujahideen commander, and he actually fell down a mountainside on the, the way to a mission. And I actually lowered myself down to him on a rope, reduced his dislocated knee, you know, stuck an injection of Valium into him, amongst other things, and splinted his leg to an old Enfield rifle. We pulled him up the hill again and went in to rocket the, the Russian advised base. Um, but I never carried, this is a very important point, I never carried arms against the Russians, and nor would I. I was there to report. I had friends, and when a friend yeah. got injured, I put him back together. But I'm always a little bit wary. You know, that wasn't my, wasn't my place. And were you guilty? I mean, were you guilty as a photographer? Were you guilty in some ways of projecting an image of what was happening in that war that you thought people ought to see? I've always been trying to pursue the cause of freedom whether it was solidarity, whether it was Afghanistan. So I don't think I feel guilty for that. I did notice that the media love death and destruction. What they call on the news desks in London and New York, bang, bang. Mm. Have you any bang, bang? Mm. Because that's, that's what turns them on. Mm. And I didn't generally produce bang, bang, a bit of it, but I like the human story. And not the sort of schmaltzy chocolate box human story that I sometimes see on the evening news, the real human story. So that, that's what I was pursuing. You talked about being a young officer mm. on the border mm. with East Germany, and you thought the balloon might be going up, but it wasn't. Is there a danger in Ukraine that by accident... There's a huge danger of escalation. I mean, just going back to that situation in Germany, I can remember, I'm not even sure what I'm allowed to say or not, but something coming through on a secure system. And I thought the balloon was going up. I was the duty officer. And I looked at the, you know, the duty um, corporal who was there, and we looked at each other and thought of... Oh, F. If this is it, this yeah. is it. Yeah, I guess. And then the machine broke down <laughs> as this was coming through. And we sort of looked at each other and I said, well, what do we do next? And, you know, being a good British Army soldier, he applied a size 9 DMS boot to this very high-tech then piece of kit and it burst back into life. And we discovered, in fact, it wasn't. It was just some sort of drill. Mm. But that feeling, it's like the feeling of being taken. These are feelings that not everybody has had. It's a very strange thing, I suppose, a privilege to have survived them. But it and shows you what can go wrong, doesn't it? Though? Oh, it does. In and a situation where someone thinks something's happening and it's not, and yep. they react in a certain yep. way, and you could have reacted And in a here is way. the point as well. These are not just human systems anymore. There's, there's a computer element, algorithms. Mm. Things can go wrong. This could get out of hand, mm. you know, not because of any human input, but just because something went wrong with the systems. That is frightening, and it's already escalated too far. And I think what we should be doing is more or less what we are doing. You know, send in the anti-tank weapons, send in the anti-aircraft weapons. No aeroplanes. Don't escalate it. Sanctions can go too far. The Russian people are not our enemy. We don't want to give the impression to them. We don't want to make the mistake of Versailles in overdoing it. You know, we, we're, I think we're doing it about right. I think the balance is about right, but we may just be going over the Does edge. Just batting Tchaikovsky next Friday. Well, that is crazy, isn't it? Cardiff, yeah. I mean, or Dostoevsky. I, I mean, <laughs> well, 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 where does it start? Yeah, quite. Where does it where start? Where does it start? On a different note, you are a great sporting shot, and we saw you there. Hitting ah, clays. But I'm going fishing tomorrow. Uh, good. Going no, on, the, well, I, on the Thames. I, I thoroughly approve of all of this, of course, because <laughs> I shoot. And you must come down if you want. No, I, I will. Some thank you. Yeah. Yeah, there we are. It's working out well this week. <laughs> but you know, Dunblane was absolutely ghastly in every way. What happened in Dunblane? Dunblane was fascinating. 
because there was a campaign to ban sporting handguns, which I think was probably covertly backed by the Labour Party and others, and we never really saw quite who was backing it. There was total blanket media coverage of it. And the poor people that were left who were sporting shooters felt that they were being made culpable mm. for one evil man's actions. And I ended up starting with a man called Albie Fox, something called the Sportsman's Association. We took 20-odd thousand people to Trafalgar Square. We had some huge rallies and marches. Arguably, they led on then later to the countryside um, events that I think you probably attended. Many, I did. Many, many people did. I mean, I was taking out full-page ads in, in the, the national heavy newspapers, but it, all to no effect. It all got banned. And was it the right thing to do? I don't know. When I look at it now, I have some doubts because armed crime has continued to spiral, but never really involving the weapons that, you know, with the very, very odd exception that are privately owned. You know, it's 99% a problem of the drug trade and enforcing the turf of drug gangsters. Yeah, no, dr I mean, let's face it, gun crime in Britain's cities went up. Quite. After the ban yeah, came in. Yeah, it, it did. And, and, it, it, and it was a great injustice to those people. I, yeah, I mean, look, Mike, I argued at the time that for the British Olympic team to have to go to Calais to, to, practice, to, to practice was nuts. Firing with a handgun yeah, yeah. Was absolutely it, it was crazy. Absolutely this nuts. could be done safely in yeah. a club environment. Yeah. But don't you feel that it's moving on now? Don't you feel that even, say, pheasant shooting, for argument's sake, which for many parts of the rural economy, is a really important part of their life for those months. I think they're salami slicing the shooting sports now. Yeah. And most of us who are involved in them are very concerned about the future. And let me just say this, because this is the real point. Shooting's great. It's a great social sport. It provides a lot of very, very positive um, hobby and sport to many thousands, nearly a million, in fact, more than a million people who do it, something like, I don't know, six or 700,000 who are licensed. Mm. Um, and it's a positive. And often the media, and I had great ructions with the BBC on this, and it cost me my career as a security specialist. I had a phone call from someone who was probably number three in BBC News then, who said if I kept pushing this stuff, quote unquote, the phone's not going to ring so often. And that really did do me in with the BBC. Yeah, no, I mean, I think shooting's really in trouble. Yeah. Um, uh, there is very, very big money. Um, I had um, Petter on the other day on the mm. programme, and they want to ban everything. They, I, mean, I mean, that's the problem. We live in a society yeah. where the big state gets ever bigger and more and more stuff gets banned. And meantime, the irony of this is you can work people up to ban anything if you, if you control the media. But I, I think most people don't really feel that they have any power now. And this was perhaps part of that agenda where people... I mean, I know you're very into people power. I'm very into people power. I think ordinary people lack of voice, but I think in the meantime a lot of people get manipulated and certainly... Well, they certainly, during the pandemic, got manipulated. Indeed. And they got very, very scared about what was going on and they got encouraged to have the vaccine and I, you know, I still believe that having those first two shots did do a lot of good. I do believe that it stopped serious illness, but I also believe that the side effects of this have been completely downplayed. I'm, I'm not anti-vaccine, but I am vaccine hesitant because personally I had a blood clot after AstraZeneca and a lot of other horrible symptoms. I'm still suffering them. I'm still not quite with it. I've still got a bit of brain fog. I've got dreadful tinnitus. I have a permanent headache. And there are thousands of other, thousands of other people like me suffering from side effects and they can't get proper treatment. I couldn't even get to see a GP until I involved Pretty Patel, who, God bless her, I'd been trying for weeks and she got me an appointment in a few hours. 
I couldn't get the treatment. And I know from my Twitter feeds that there are thousands of people who are not getting, they're not getting noticed. People are unaware of how many people have been affected. And that's well, a really yeah, I mean, bad there deal. A, there is a Pfizer report out yeah. um, in America, and that says 158,000 people that they've clocked have got serious side effects from the vaccine. As a percentage of all of those that were vaccinated, it's very important to emphasise that it's small. If anyone listening just goes to Google or whatever search engine and puts in AstraZeneca printout or Pfizer printout, yeah. it will take you through to the official UK government statistics. And they're, they're showing something like 1,400 people reported dead and something over a million side effects. That's a lot. It is a lot, yeah. Yeah, it depends mm. what's serious. Yes, and, and it yeah. depends. No. You know, there are issues to how you no. well, tabulate I'm, the statistics I'm, and all the rest of I'm it. I'm pleased that you're being looked after, but I fear there are others out there with side effects yeah. that are not. No. And come shooting. I will. And right. that applies to everyone. Clay, clay, <laughs> shooting, shooting, clay, shooting, clay, clay shooting is great fun. It's like fishing. It is great It's fun. a way to escape the world and it have a good time fun. with your mates. Thank you for joining me on Talking Party. Cheers. Thank, Thank you. OK, we've got a couple of minutes left on the programme. It is time for Barrage the Farage. I get your questions and they are sight unseen. Jim asks me, what's your personal opinion of how President Zelensky is doing? Well, look, he is a terrific performer. And it was interesting, wasn't it, when he spoke to the House of Commons via video link. I mean, he was almost citing, wasn't he, Winston Churchill's words uh, post-Dunkirk 1940. Uh, I think the point that my guest Mike made was, you know, there's a lot wrong in Ukraine and it isn't as simple as goodies v baddies. Uh, but I think he's shown a degree of courage, don't you? Oh, yes. And I think he's, bri he's brilliant in front of the cameras. Yes. And, you know, he, he really knows how to lead people. And I'll tell you what we lack in the UK, and I think you well know it, is leadership. <laughs> this programme has said that once or twice before. <laughs> Rob asks, do you think the rich and wealthy, irrelevant of tax paid, should be made to go private to reduce the NHS waiting list for the needy. Look, I don't believe in forcing people to do anything, mm. but I do believe, and I've argued passionately for years and years and years, that people should be incentivised, if they've got the money, to go private, to leave the NHS with a reduced burden. And, and it was interesting, that point was made by Sir Edward Lee in the House of Commons a couple of weeks ago. I hope the government have the courage to really pick this up and run with it. Alex asks, pint of Guinness... Or pint of Bovril. It's a pint of Guinness. It's real Guinness. It's real, a pint absolutely of Guinness. real Guinness. <laughs> Fraser asks, after you heroically survived your plane crash in 2010, did this change your perspective on life at all? I didn't heroically do anything. Heroic is if I saw somebody else in a plane crash or a car crash and it was on fire and I went in to get them out at huge risk to my own life. That's heroic. Being stuck in the middle of a nightmare isn't heroic. You just do your best. Did it change my perspective on life? Yeah, I think actually the truth is, in terms of my political campaign, it, I just after that moment, I couldn't care less what anybody else thought or said, especially in the European Parliament or elements of the British media. I just got going. That's the end of it. I'm back with you on Monday.